Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So we are in part two of a three-part short series on the fractured church is what we're calling it because we think we're facing right now, especially in this last year, a lot of really key challenges that have fractured the culture and brought fracture to the church as a whole. And we need to figure some things out and learn how to navigate them well. We talked about this last week, but I'll just reiterate. Recent Gallup polls show that one-third of the regular churchgoers have left the church for good in 2020 due to shutdowns and distancing and new habits and new thoughts. It's big, isn't it? As a nation, this is the first time where less than 50% of the people are tied to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. So the question we're asking through this series is how can we come back as a church even better? How do we seize the opportunities that this last year has put in front of us? So last week we looked at one of the three things the early church in Acts was devoted to. It says in Acts 2, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And we looked at how devoted they were to each other relationally and friendship in a sense of community that boldly asserts how essential it is for us today to live intentionally in relationships with one another in a culture that pushes individualism, we need to model a sense of community and togetherness that is winsome and powerful. This week, we're going to actually focus on being devoted to the apostles' teaching in our current culture. That's a big issue, right? So let's get into this way. Political scientist Samuel Harrington uh, identified that America has gone through, from his research historically, every, about every six years, something called, 60 years, called something called a moral convulsion. So he identifies the American Revolution as one of those, the 1760s and 1770s, then the uprising of Andrew Jackson, uh, 1820s and 1830s, which eventually led us to the Civil War. He talks about the Progressive Era that began in the 1890s. And then in the 1960s and 70s, you have the sexual liberation and civil rights movement kind of creating moral questions and moral convulsion in our culture leading all the way to today. Every moral convulsion he studied, has similar features. There's a widespread, a widespread sense of moral decline. Trust in institutions and government plummets. Contempt for established power is intense. Out of the convulsions, as he says, studies historically, you have a new generation come to power and control the national conversation. These groups, once outside of power, rise up and take over the system. But in the midst of that, there's a lot of accusation and excitement and zeal and passion. And, and does any of this sound familiar to what we're going through today? Before he died, Huntington actually predicted the next moral convulsion would hit America around 2020. I think he was right. We are living in a time of moral convulsion. Now, through a moral convulsion, new norms, values, beliefs tend to arise. Power within institutions begins to get renegotiated. Afterward, you kind of see what kind of nation the nation will become. Yet, with the later, this latest moral convulsion, social scientists have expressed concern because the U.S. is showing 
a brokenness at a level in regard to trust that leaves many wondering if America will ever be able to pull together as a nation and learn how to rebuild trust. Or will we just be left broken and caught in a loop of distrust and destruction and convulsion? Mistrust in America is extremely high. And not just toward institutions, but between people, trust is low. That low trust between people is what is most concerning to people who have studied this, historians who have studied this, because when trust between people is low in societies, the societies begin to fall apart. So just think for a minute with me of the baby boomer generation who grew up in the 50s and 60s, where they experienced this era of stability within families. Prosperity was increasing. Culturally, it was more cohesive in America. For the younger generations, like millennials and Gen Z, they grew up in a world where institutions failed. Financial systems collapsed. Families were fragile, often broken. They're a generation that is now expecting lower quality of life for themselves than for their parents. Threats from all sides, pandemic, climate change, social media, and so many other things. They look at the world differently, leading many social scientists to say, unless we can find a way to rebuild trust, the nation does not function. Their deep concern comes from the difference our current generation has from past generations. Past generations had a moral base, but the moral convulsion of the last 60 years emerged from what social scientists call the moral freedom movement. It was the belief that life is best when people find their own morality, choose their own moral code. Author David Brooks wrote it like this in The Atlantic. He said, when you look back on it from the vantage of 2020, moral freedom, like the other dominant values of the time, contain within them a core assumption. And that assumption is this. If everybody is, does their own thing, then everything will work out for everybody. If everybody pursues their own economic self-interest, then the economy will thrive for all. If everybody chooses their own family style, then children will prosper. If each individual chooses his or her own moral code, then people will still feel solidarity with one another and be decent toward one another. He goes on to say, this was an ide ideology of maximum freedom and minimum sacrifice, and it all looks naive now. I think we could probably all agree with him. It's a heavy season in our culture today. But remember, God knew this would happen and placed each one of us to live in this time. So as, someone who wants, so, so, so as someone once said, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. So let's re-envision, let's dream. How can we, the church, let God re-envision what he wants us to be as his representative this, in, in this world and bring hope to our culture? The early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's our focus today. It's not easy, is it, to be devoted to the, to the scriptures in a, in a culture that promotes moral relativism, the belief that there is no universal truth. And like now, that was the same for the early church as well. In July of 2020, 31% of teens and young adults strongly agree that what is morally right and wrong changes over time based on society. That's compared to 25% just a few years ago. 
and another 43% somewhat agree with that. What that means is the majority of young people believe moral truth shifts with moral, with moral society, with society shifts. Only 10% of young people surveyed strongly agreed that what is morally right and wrong changes, strongly disagreed, sorry, with what is morally right and wrong changes based over time. In other words, only 10% thought there was some stability to morality over time. Therefore, we live in a culture where most people in the U.S., including many Christians, live by a moral code that basically says, follow your heart. Your inner intuition, feelings, and desires, they'll tell you right from wrong and lead you to the happy life. Be true to yourself as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else is the value. The problem with following your heart is it assumes your heart is trustworthy and a good barometer to know how to get to the good life. It assumes our hearts are not filled with contradictory desires and not warped by sin. Also, how do you know in that context of moral relativism if you are hurting someone else? If we don't have an agree, clear agreed upon definition of what is good and evil, how do you figure that out? Loving someone requires having knowledge of what is good or bad. Our culture does not have clarity on right and wrong in so many ways at this time in our life. If your kids come to you and said, I want to try cocaine, you'd probably say absolutely not, right? Hard drugs are bad and harmful. I mean, we need some kind of moral authority to tell us what is good and what is evil. But our culture doesn't have that anchor today. Because if we just came from apes and through the survival of the fittest, we'd kill off the weak. And in that context, how in the world do you ever get to the place of agreeing upon what cultural, socioeconomic, and racial justice will ever even look like in the first place if you come from that basis? How do we get to the place where we value all of humanity? We're not going to get there from secularism. We have to go to Genesis 1 where all human beings are created in the image of God and therefore have value. We need a moral authority, God, to tell us what is good and what is evil. A moral relativism that asserts there is no universal truth, only my truth and your truth is, is full of problems. First of all, it's the fact that they say there are no absolutes is an absolute statement, so there's kind of a rub there. But how do you make statements like women are equally as valuable as men unless there is a moral truth that stands consistently over time? Relativism is actually quite arrogant, if you think about it. Because if I say Christianity is true for me and Islam is true for you, I'm not taking the beliefs of either of those religions seriously. Ultimately, we respect each other more if we're willing to disagree. Or as Tim Keller says, tolerance isn't about, it isn't about not having beliefs, it's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. How do you see moral relativism, moral relativism in your life, in your relationships? Over the years, I, I, in fact, every week I hear moral relativism in people's conversations. I've heard many people say, uh, you know, that they first come to Christianity because it seems freeing. But then 
a little while later, they get to the point where they just want to do what they want to do. So the freedom they once felt now actually feels like maybe a feeling of guilt. And I've heard those who have said uh, straight to my face about affairs. It's so beautiful. It feels so right. How can it be wrong for me to cheat on my spouse? Now, unresolved shame is not okay to live with. But guilt is vital if we're going to ever live a moral life. Yet in our culture, guilt is seen as something to be rid of. It's used, it used to be that people rejected Christianity because they didn't believe the miracles could be true. But today, Christianity is more often rejected because it, it's, it asserts absolute truths, and we don't like it, and we want to get rid of the guilt that comes with those truths, so it's just easier to say it's old-fashioned or moralistic and dismiss it rather than deal with it. In today's culture, We can't even seem to talk about biblical boundaries without coming across like we are legalistic. See, moral relativism has seeped into all of us at some level. C.S. Lewis says, The the enemy's goal is not to make us great sinners, but to make us lukewarm with a goal of having us drift off. And it kind of goes along with an old Arab fable about a nomad and his camel who hunkered down during a sandstorm. So the storm approaches and the man hurriedly crawls into his tent and the, the camel is kneeling just outside the tent. And when the, when the first flecks of sand swirl past, the camel asks his master, Master, I, I don't need to ask for much. My nose is very sensitive and the sand irritates it very much. So could I perhaps just poke my nose inside the tent? And the master thought, well, that's kind of a reasonable request, not to mention harmless. And so he readily granted it and Not long afterward, the camel spoke up and said, Master, the storm has grown much stronger. The sand is now blasting my eyelids and my ears. Would it be okay if I just stuck my whole head inside the tent? Now the master cared for his camel, right? And so he didn't want to cause such cruel discomfort, so he allowed the camel to reach his head into the tent. A short time later, the camel petitioned the master once more. The storm is quite exhausting. I I, I can't endure it much longer. I need to have a short rest. I hope you'll allow me to come all the way inside the tent. I won't stay long. Now the nomad needed his beast, a burden to be in good shape, to complete his journey, so he told the camel that he could come on inside the tent. And as soon as he came inside the tent, the camel kicked the master out into the midst of the storm. What have you done, cried the master? Did I not give you everything you asked for? Why then have you treated me so unfairly? And the camel replied, you're a foolish man for allowing me to put my nose inside the tent. See, drifting into moral relativism is something that we can all fall into almost imperceptibly. And we start asking the question, how did I get there? So what are the things you are doing now, watching now, for example, that you would never have dreamed of watching five years ago or doing five years ago? How far has the camel gotten into your tent? See, that's why we see the church was devoted to the teaching of Scripture and to one another, because we need others who can help us stay accountable to what we know to be true in life, to help us see sin, to help us know how to live more like Jesus. So let's, let's clarify. One of the biggest issues or objections people have with Christianity is this, that Christianity believes in absolute truth. 
meaning Christians have certain beliefs they think everyone should also believe and live by and follow. The fear today around that whole concept is this. Anyone who believes in absolute truth will try to oppress those who think differently. See, because today's version of moral relativism and and, and a lot of the culture's conversation around topics like this is based in the idea of power. We believe absolute truth is the enemy of freedom. However, I'd like to explore that a little bit further, and I love the way Tim Keller kind of summarizes it to get us into it. He says, truth is a lot more important than you would think. Freedom is a lot more complex than you would think. And Jesus is a lot more liberating than you think. So let's look at John 8 and Jesus' words. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, and my, uh, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have, ever, have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say to us, You will become free? And Jesus answered them, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What he's saying is truth actually sets you free. Freedom comes from truth. See, our culture thinks the opposite. We feel like if we have to comply with the truth, you're forcing it. And you have to obey it, and that is a lack of freedom. Why do we feel that way? Well, one of the most recent influential philosophers, Michael Foucault, whose thoughts are behind a lot of our cultural dialogue, even if you don't know it, he's a major influence on our culture dialogue today. He was a disciple of Nietzsche, and you can hear uh, Nietzsche in what he says when he says, all truth claims are power plays. When you claim to have the truth, What you are really doing is trying to get power over other people. Claiming truth is a method of control. Heard that in our cultural debate today? So, for example, if you make a truth claim like all lives matter and we should promote social justice, but Nietzsche and Foucault would say, well, why are you calling everyone to justice? Is it because you love justice? Or is it because you want to start a revolution that will put you in power and you'd be on top then, which they lean towards that latter perspective? Or maybe you say everyone should obey the Bible. Nietzsche and Foucault would say, should everyone obey the Bible because you love the Bible? Or because you want to be morally superior to others so that you can justify your abuse and marginalization of those who don't believe in the Bible? And honestly... These are two great questions from a couple atheists. These are excellent questions. We need to know where our hearts are at. Because that's what the Pharisees did. They used truth as a way to get power, to justify their control over other people. And Jesus regularly rebuked them for it. That said, while truth claims can be power plays, they are not always power plays. Everybody makes truth claims. You have to in order to live. It's not making a truth claim that leads to oppression. It is the motivation in the truth claim that determines whether it is good and loving or it is a power play. Jesus said the truth will set you free. 
I heard a story this last week about a captain sailing a, a ship who was devastated because he chose the wrong channel, which resulted in the ship running aground and in being wrecked in disaster. See, there's a right and a wrong channel in life. Why did the captain choose the wrong one? Maybe he didn't know. Maybe he was lied to and then he chose the wrong channel. Regardless, he was out of touch with the truth. Had the captain known and followed the truth, everyone on board would have been free. See, the goal is not to get away from truth, but to live in accordance with the truth and allow the truth to set you free. So let's say you live for success and money. If you live to make money, nothing else matters to you. You end up working too hard, ruining your physical health and your relationships. You chose the wrong channel. You are not living in accordance with truth, and there are consequences. You thought you were free, but you found you were actually enslaved to a lie as to what brings health and joy and peace in life. See, freedom comes when we know the truth, follow and submit to the truth, not create our own truth. Freedom means we have restrictions, things we can and cannot do. Uh, So just think about it in the terms of eating. All of you who are getting older, you know this really well. The older you get, the more you have to refrain from eating anything we want. You have to restrict your freedom for your own health. You have to give up certain things so that you can be free to have good health and a long life. Or if you have a skill, like in sports or music. You practice and practice, which leads you to not doing certain things. You restrict yourself because you don't have time for everything. You want the freedom of being able to perform and do things like run faster, jump higher, play something more beautifully. Think of this further. Freedom is not the absence of discipline, but neither is freedom the presence of discipline. See, some people think if they just have good discipline, then they'd be free. But let's say you're a 5'2", 110-pound person, and you want to be an NBA power forward guarding 6'9", 250-pound LeBron James. I mean, all of your teachers and family have told you your whole life you can do anything you want to, you can be anything you want to be. You believed it, you practice, and you practice, and you discipline, and you restrict yourself, but you're wasting your time. Because freedom is not the absence or presence of restrictions. Freedom is found in the presence of the right restrictions. The restrictions that fit the truth of who God has made you to be. You can't be anything you want to be. The question is, what has God designed you to be? Those right restrictions will release you into a deeper and richer freedom than you could ever imagine. The truth will set you free. This is why a fish out of water laying on green grass is not free. You have to restrict the fish to the water in order for it to experience freedom. Maybe, maybe we see the clearest picture of this in the, in the context of love. Think about a relationship you've had where you've been in love. Do you have to give up individual freedom in order to love well? See, love comes more fully when we surrender different kinds of freedom to show the value of the relationship. See, I remember when first married, things changed. 
I couldn't just go off after work and not tell Wendy what I was going to do or what I wanted to do. I needed to let her know I, I couldn't just go out and spend money however I wanted because it was now our money. See, the more intimate a love relationship, the less independent you can be. Love requires you to surrender all kinds of freedom, but it brings a whole new beauty to the freedom of giving and receiving love that you couldn't experience without it. Now, I I recognize some of you have been harmed in relationships where you've surrendered freedom. You gave up your independence and ended up being harmed, maybe even exploited in a relationship. You don't even ever want to be that vulnerable again. So the idea of choosing to follow God more personally, more deeply, and surrender feels, it just feels unsafe. Those concepts feel unsafe. You don't want to be used again. I get that. I've talked to enough people in your boat. I understand not all your feeling, but I understand that sentiment. So maybe the next point will speak to that. Jesus, uh, or John, a close follower of Jesus, began the book of, of his eyewitness account talking about Jesus this way. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Greek word translated word there is this word logos. It means more than Jesus was the word of God. Logos meant that which gave life and meaning to the universe, is what that word meant in that day. The Greeks thought this logos was an impersonal force, not a personal being, kind of this harsh reality that you either bump up against and and kill yourself up against or you comply with. It's just kind of a harsh, impersonal reality. John purposely uses a loaded Greek philosophical term and hits them with this absolute truth statement. In the beginning was the Logos. This ultimate reality and meaning in the universe is not an impersonal idea, but a person. Unlike other religions where God is an impersonal force, Jesus Christ, the very God of the universe, is personal and gives meaning and purpose to all things. When you choose to surrender to the right logos, the right truth, Jesus says we will experience true freedom. You are made for God to know him, to follow him, to enjoy him, to enjoy the way he created you and all of the beauty that he created you in. See, there's a big difference between absolute truth, that's an idea that we impersonally bump up against, and a person. Because truth and Christianity is about love. When you have a relationship that is loving, you have to surrender your independence. You both have to do it. Each of you says, I give up my independence for you. I will sacrifice my needs to love you. I'll, both of you sacrifice. If only one of you does, that's when you become exploited or used. For many, they think God of God as being in heaven and declaring these Ten Commandments, these just arbitrary things that we shall and shall not do. And that feels like a one-way relationship with an impersonal God demanding you live up to his rules. You do all the sacrifice in order to stay in relationship with him. Yet that's not Jesus. That's not the God of the Bible. Other religions and philosophies at times may have you have those kinds of restrictions of a one-sided relationship, but that's not Christianity. Because the absolute truth, the Logos, Jesus, God, 
became a human person with us and went to the cross and chose to lose his independence for you. He sacrificed for you everything. He was exploited for you. He surrendered to the Father's will for you. He was killed for you. Jesus invites you to a two-way relationship, a relationship of surrender. He gave up his freedom so you can know that you can trust him. See, this is not a relationship where you have to be driven by fear and worry. Did I do enough? Will I go to heaven? If I, do, if I don't obey and I make a mistake, will God send me to hell? That's not freedom. That kind of thinking is slavery. God died a death that I should have died to save me. He loved me that much. That's the freedom he gives to us. I love this verse. It says, for the love of Christ controls us. It's his love that controls us. It doesn't feel oppressive. His love changes everything. Worship team, come on back up. If, if you're here and you're going to be baptized and haven't already taken off, go, go jump and change. We'll be back here in a minute. Let me wrap this up. In this world of moral relativity, we're focused on being a church that follows Jesus with everything we have. Because we believe Jesus is, is, is the most spectacular wisdom and goodness, that he is the most compelling personal truth that we could ever know. As a church, certainly all of us are going to make mistakes, and we will need to apologize regularly for the ways that we don't follow Jesus' example as truth. But we will never apologize for our love of Jesus and our commitment to him, our commitment to his truth and the value of his word, the Bible. See, we believe that Jesus is Christ, whom God, God raised from the dead, and will one day return to judge the wicked and the righteous and fully destroy every trace of evil from our bodies, our world, and reign forever. To this truth, this person, to Jesus, we seek to surrender everything daily to follow him. And because we believe this, we know that nothing is too big or too impossible for God. We believe God has a future for us, for his church, for his community, for this nation, for this world. So let's think about how we can walk this out this week. Think of an issue where you've been questioning what you should do. Where you think, maybe, maybe, maybe it's an issue where you think you've let the camel's nose start to get into your tent. An issue you're concerned about what is right and what is wrong. What's the right choice? So what are some of the thoughts you've had around that issue? Have you thought, well, it's no big deal. God loves me and will forgive me anyway. Or everybody else is doing it. Maybe a better question you could ask yourself is, who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus the Son of God? Is he who he says he is? The way? The truth? the life, the one who sets you free when you discover his truth. Because who he is to you determines everything. Until you decide that, how can you even make a decision whether something is right or wrong? So maybe this week let's pause and let's think. 
Am I being shaped more into who Jesus is by the Word of God in the Bible and by fellowship with His church, or am I being shaped by the world and my own wants? Would you stand with me as we pray? God, we open our hearts to you right now. And Lord, I just ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit and make yourself known to every single one of us in this room. Lord, I know that for all of us, whether we even believe in you or not, there is a desire in each one of us to know what is true, what is right, what is best, what is healthiest, and we want to live in that. So Lord, I pray that you'd begin to show us and lead us to be convinced of how great your love is for us, how good your intentions are toward us, what a great life you have planned for us. And Lord, we would discover that when we discover you, the truth, the one who created all that exists, the one who loves us so much, that we would truly discover a freedom to thrive in life, to enjoy the fullness of who you've created each and every one of us to be, to enjoy the fullness of who you've created everyone around us to be. Holy Spirit, come. And Lord, I pray for those here and those listening online who are, who are not yet convinced you are who you say you are. And Lord, I know you, you know that's okay. And I, I just pray, Father, that you would come to them and that you would lead them in a process where they can come to the point where they are fully convinced because they've encountered the depth of your love for them. They know you as a person, not just as a book, not just as an idea, not just as a set of rules, but they know you as a person. So Holy Spirit, come make yourself known right now. Lord, we bless you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.